Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. This is a bonus episode, a reflection on the current crisis, the war breaking out in Israel and Palestine. It is a newsletter reflection that I sent to newsletter subscribers, and this is the audio version. In the show notes, I include the transcript from that newsletter. I include a must-read article by Rabbi Dana Rattenberg that is in the show notes. Please take a moment to situate yourself and capture a perspective from, quote, inside the house. Welcome to this bonus reflection as we hold space in the midst of crisis. As I wrote this newsletter, the ground offensive into Gaza is set to begin. A response to the odious terrorist attacks by Hamas in Israel, killing over 1,300 and counting. The IDF continues to respond with airstrikes into Gaza, which at last count have killed 1,900 and counting. In moments like these, nations don't slow down to consider the long-term costs Nations respond in the only manner they seem to know how, speed up to enact vengeance. In its wake will be rising costs to life. In other words, we shouldn't expect anything different than an escalation to war. And who will bear the brunt of devastation? Children. Children are the primary victims of this escalating war. In Gaza alone, Over 40% of the population are children. Over 40%. I tend to be slow to speak on issues that I have little business putting my nose into, including this one. But there is a time to express solidarity. And there's also a time to name pertinent observations. Like when the tensions in the Middle East pit Israel versus any foe, many Christians slide into an immediate posture to justify violent vengeance with wicked ease. It bothers me when Christians, particularly those who are normally silent on matters of grave injustice, offer opinions cut from religious formation that condones hate, violence, and bigotry. It doesn't seem that way, maybe if you're on the inside, but on the outside, it is. It's as if there are moments when bypassing the teachings of Jesus is justified so long as it props up specific power holders or worldviews. This connection is important because it has specific roots in Western thought and praxis. Both the imperialist arm of nation-states, we'll get to that later, and white hegemonic Christian theology. Namely, many Christians in the West, particularly white evangelicals and fundamentalists, are formed in untruths coupled with defunct theology that produces some incredulous opinions. For example, answer this question. How would Jesus respond to this unfolding war? Would he be siding with a particular nation? Would he be rushing to pick up arms? Would he have an I told you this would happen moment? Or would he be searching for the peacemakers? siding with the children, declaring a love for thy enemy. Love thy enemy, turn the other cheek, that bothers a lot of Christians. Now nations are going to nation, which is why Israel will go to war and raise Gaza to the ground. 
But the two can be true at the same time. War is happening. Christians and Christians ought to have a unified voice advocating for peacemaking and the preservation of humanity. We need this subversive voice to speak louder. War will break out, has broken out. Gaza raised to the ground. A stronger Israel emerges, and here's what's not going to happen. Jesus is one step closer to coming back to earth. Wait, what? That was a bit of a leap, kind of out of left field, but it's the type of end times thinking many Christians hold, and it makes sense, or rather less sense, than my paragraph. There are popularized theological opinions that earnestly believe war, of whom children will be the primary victims, is the most logical pathway for Jesus' return. It's odious. Intersections. The picture at the top, which is included in the blog, is me standing in front of the West Bank wall. It was taken in 2008. I'm standing in front of a wall that would make Trump proud. It was newly-ish constructed at that time and marked the separation between Israel and the West Bank. Behind me would have been Beit Sahur and Bethlehem. The wall is built significantly past the Green Line or the 1949 Armistice border, which is encroaching on Palestinian territory. Remember, Palestine is not a country. They're under Israeli occupation. The wall was constructed to create checkpoints that all Palestinians not living in Jerusalem had to go through. It was built in response to terrorist attacks. The wall works, reducing attacks by over 90%. It also means every Palestinian who needs to work or travel have to pass through a military checkpoint twice daily. The next picture is the other side of the wall, which says apartheid on the concrete wall. Now, I didn't go through the wall or the checkpoint in the early morning, which is far worse. I went through in the evening. I didn't have strong opinions, either on Israel or Palestine, prior to arriving in Jerusalem. My crumbling and already loose evangelical formation that included, I'm ashamed to say, of the fictional series Left Behind, it wasn't enough to ignore the other side of the wall. Although I have done extensive reading on the region prior to completing my last year of seminary back in 2008... The tangible monuments from the wall to the barbed wire to the soldiers etched into my mind a visceral power imbalance. See, back home, although I have Muslim friends, one cannot escape the anti-Islamic bias perpetuated throughout Western culture. Brown and Muslim are a deadly combination. I also went to the region seven years after 9-11. So despite some knowledge about the magnitude of complexities, I didn't have enough to make sense of what was happening on the ground. So was it more knowledge, the answer? Then during my trip, we went to a church service. Actually, it was more of a meal than a church service in the home of a Palestinian family. The father-husband was also a pastor, Pentecostal, oddly, who invited us in. And that's when my paradigm shifted. Tangible relationships do wonders to shift theological opinion and worldview. This was a formative moment for me. And looking back, I remember how the only Christians we met in the land were Palestinian Christians whose roots went back generations, not just centuries, but millennia. 
I also remember a talk that we went to with a pastor, Dr. Mitri Raheb. That was a formative moment as well to shape and form the way that I viewed Israel, Palestine, and my own faith. There's an oddity that I've alluded to regarding what I think is fringe Christian theology. Theology that takes Jesus and ties him to the modern nation of Israel. See, some Christians believe that the establishment of Israel is linked to the second coming of Christ. So much so, they will tacitly support Israel in hopes of speeding up the process. Now, ask any Jew today or yesterday about this connection, and they won't have the foggiest notion about it. Although I'm sure many Israeli organizations are happy to take the monies from Christian zealots trying to speed up the return of their Messiah. It sounds preposterous, because it is. Not only is it fringe theology, it's bad theology. But it's also theology that compels a lot of Christians to vote and speak out in specific ways that in the end bring harm. By the way, I'm only talking about a fringe set of beliefs that represent a sizable voting block in America and not speaking in any way to the on the ground realities and political intersections between Israelis and Palestinians. And by bad theology, I mean theological opinion that's largely rejected by most Christian denominations and traditions, even the evangelical ones today. Dispensationalism, for its part, is a relatively modern movement or theological movement which is waning and has less than 200 years under its belt. It is largely built to accommodate Christian supremacy in the world and Christian salvation at the expense of annihilation of everyone else. To oversimplify, the constant violence throughout the Middle East was birthed out of the tentacles of Western imperialism. The current state of Israel was manufactured by Western powers following the end of World War II. Nobody wanted to take in Holocaust survivors, and there were a lot. So those same powers took out a big map and drew borders for a new nation, present-day Israel. They did so without any care for the hundreds of, th- hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were already there. There was a distinct lack of foresight of what displacing people from their lands to migrate displaced people, who would call their lands theirs as well, would do to destabilize the region. It was trouble from day one that's produced unending tension and violence, and importantly, a widening gap of systemic oppression where today one side, propped up by the West, inflicts the most damage. You'll have to visit the blog post or newsletter to see the infographic of violence, fatalities, of wounded over the past 10 years. Opinions on how to move forward in the region, I don't have those. I'm not there. It's not my fight. But raising my voice to name power imbalance and how the participation of imperial powers is related, that I can do. Indeed, it's Christ-like to name how Christians in the West are contributing to violence and oppression, even if it's through their politics. How specific theologies are rooted in violence and oppression, which is a good place for the decolonized mind to start unlearning. To come full circle, the West produced this problem in most ways. The West continues to exacerbate the problem. Christians in the West, particularly in the United States, are vocal proponents of Israel, not because they care about the annihilation of Jews, because that's a real devastating threat and worthy of support, but because it's tied towards the end times. Although I readily admit this is a generalization, what I'm trying to tease out is how we, Christians, 
hold unknowing formation deep down inside that informs how we think, view the world, and view the people in the world. It's not equal. Some are the chosen ones, others the pariah, both vilified and dehumanized. Categorizations that fuel the engine of violence at the expense of marginalized people, of which children are the primary victims. This should leave us with deep lament for the tragedies that have taken place and are about to. It ought to compel us to form of suitable action, to speak out against atrocities. It must challenge us to drop false pretenses of equivocations, both sides are, or whataboutisms. What about what they did? And adopt the unambiguous call to find a more life-giving way that seeks to preserve and elevate the beauty in our collective humanity. <laughs>